True faith for a Christian means you believe in, belong to, and are becoming like Jesus. But the path to that third item, becoming like Jesus, can seem mysterious to many of us. Becoming like Jesus involves maturing in our faith. Jesus defined spiritual maturity in Luke 6. He told us, A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. How do we mature in faith so we can become more like Jesus? That's what today's podcast is all about. It's a talk I recently gave called The Map to Maturity, and it presents a path you can follow to grow in your faith. Maps help us in two ways. They orient us by helping us discover where we are, and they guide us towards a destination should we choose to move forward. I hope the following talk can help you discover where you are and point you in the direction of growing in your faith so you become more like Jesus. It's a privilege to be here this morning and sharing with you. When Pastor Shelton asked if I'd be willing to share on this Sunday since he was gonna be out of town, I made it very clear to him that I, I'm not a preacher, so standing up front like this is not something that I do very often. It's not my favoritist thing to do. <laughs> um, but I do love the Lord. I love scriptures. I love sharing with people about faith. And so um, that's what we're gonna do this morning. And we're actually gonna go through something called the map to maturity. If you guys got the email earlier this week, um, it's something that I saw maybe 30 years ago, and it was super helpful in my own life. And so um, when I was talking with Pastor Shelton, initially I was going to be sharing out of the, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. But as we were talking about um, growing in faith and helping other people grow in their faith, being disciples and making disciples, he asked if I'd be willing to share this uh, this morning. So it's going to be a little bit different uh, but I hope it's encouraging and helpful for you guys. Just by way of introducing this, um, this illustration. So this is a map, and we're going to walk through these different stages of growth in our spiritual lives. But before we dive into that, just a little bit about um, my own journey of faith. Um, I grew up, a lot of my childhood was in Kentucky, which is part of a region that's sometimes referred to as the Bible Belt. So as I was coming into adulthood, I believed in God. There's never been a time in my life where I didn't believe in God. God made sense to me. And because I wasn't an atheist and wasn't Muslim, wasn't Jewish, um, I was Christian. And I had heard stories about Jesus, Jesus walking on the water, feeding 5,000, dying on the cross, coming back from the grave. Um, and I accepted all of those things. But there were two major misconceptions that I believe prevented me from having true faith. So even though I had some, some information from the Bible and I accepted it, um, my life had not been transformed by Jesus. And I think in part because I had these two misconceptions. The first was that God is distant and impersonal. Somehow I had gotten the idea as I was growing up that God is real, he exists. But there's 8 billion people on the earth. I'm only one of those 8 billion people and not a, a very important one at that. 
And while God is busy running the universe and taking care of the important things, um, I'm just kind of going through life. So I believed in God, but he was very distant and he wasn't a personal um, part of my life. Um, A second misconception that I had was that, um, I don't know exactly how to put this into words, but that this life is kind of like being at a bus stop. And uh, what I mean by that is that um, we're all just waiting for the bus to arrive, either Jesus's return or our earthly deaths. And then once that bus arrives, that's gonna be where the real adventure kicks off. So maybe it's, maybe it's even more like going to Disney World and you're, you're waiting for the, the tram that's gonna take you into the park. And that's where it really gets exciting. And so, um, yeah, this life was, it was a very passive approach to belief that we believe in God, but it's almost more of a membership. And we're just kind of trying to be good people while we wait for the real life to begin. And so those two misconceptions, I think, were preventing me from really understanding God and the life of faith that he was calling me to. And as I was going through college, God began to correct those misconceptions. So the first one, that God was distant and impersonal, uh, that began to be reshaped uh, because I began to read the Bible, funny enough. And so when I read the Bible, what I found in scriptures is a God who is highly personal. In fact, we're personal because we're made in his image. So God was highly personal and he was, he was highly active. He was active in the lives of ordinary, regular people as you read the pages of scripture, people like us. So God was personal and he was active. And, and as I was reading, especially in the gospels, I discovered that Jesus knew who I was and was aware of my life and wanted me to belong to him and to follow him. And so in my last year of school, um, I became a follower of Christ and I became a true Christian. I began to um, know and follow Jesus at that point. But it was about a year between that and this second misconception, this idea of life being a bus stop. So for that first year uh, of following Jesus, I wasn't sure exactly what I needed to do. Um, In fact, uh, I sometimes talk about it as, uh, I had a very clear picture of the, the thou shalt nots. So there were things that I had been doing Uh, before I gave my life to Christ that I knew I was supposed to stop doing. Those were very clear. The thou shalt nots were clear. But the thou shalts, like what what should I be doing as a follower of Christ? What does it mean to to live and follow him um, on this side of the grave? That was much less clear to me. And the way God brought about some clarity for that second misconception is he brought someone into my life, an older gentleman by the name of Cecil Bean. Now, how many of you guys know someone named Cecil? A few people. Uh, how old is Cecil? <laughs> like it's, it's not a very common name um, for the younger generation. Uh, and now, mind you, this was 30 years ago, so maybe it was more common then. I was 20. Uh, at the time, and he was 50. So I sometimes think about that, that I am, I am at the age now that Cecil was at when I met him. And um, 
What Cecil was able to do was, in part, he shared this illustration with me, which I'm gonna share with you all today. It was super helpful because it began to give me a clearer picture of the thou shouts. What does it mean to follow Jesus and, and live for him? So we're gonna talk about that. But a second thing that Cecil and his wife Jeannie did is they ended up discipling my wife Cindy and I for about seven years and um, sharing their lives with us, helping us learn how to read and study the scriptures and helping us learn how to pass that forward to others. And um, that was such a huge life-changing part of my life's story that um, continues to shape me today. That that's, that's something that we enjoy doing is, yes, following Jesus, but also helping other people follow him. So we're going to um, look at several passages today. So our key verse was uh, 2 Peter 3.18 that Carlo read earlier, but we'll read it again here. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. That's the life of faith that Jesus is calling us to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's dive into this map to maturity. And um, hopefully it'll, it'll help you as much as, it, as it's helped me over the years. So. The first thing that we'll see when we look at that map, when we think about people in uh, the world today, we can, we can put people in lots of different categories, men and women, married and single, um, Americans or other nationalities, ethnicities, uh, socioeconomic classes. We can put people in lots of different categories as we try to understand who is this person and how do they fit. Um, but when God looks at the earth, I would suggest that he sees people in two basic categories, uh, people who belong to him and are part of his family who have entered the kingdom of God and those who are still outside in what the Bible describes as the dominion of darkness or the kingdom of this world. So the first verse I'd like us to look at is on the far left here, Colossians 1:13 and 14. And it says that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so think about, there's a lot to say amen about in this, in this verse. Um, but I want to draw your attention to these two kingdoms. Um, one he refers to as a dominion, the dominion of darkness. But you could use the word kingdom. It's, it's a synonym. And that's what we've been rescued out of. All of us started off in this dominion or this kingdom of darkness. That's what, that's what we needed to be rescued from. Uh, and actually, maybe for you this morning, maybe you're still in the dominion of darkness. Maybe you haven't yet been rescued out of that and brought into the kingdom of God's son whom he loves. But that's God's desire. That's the starting point is... You could say to get on the map. <laughs> so all of us kind of start off the map. We're in this dominion of darkness until God rescues us and brings us into the kingdom of his son. Now there's lots of words that the Bible could have used to describe what happens when someone moves from that first kingdom, the dominion of darkness, into the kingdom of God's son. Um, we could think of it in terms of uh, a membership or a commitment. 
But interestingly, the Bible uses the word birth. That's the most common word to describe what is happening when someone, what takes someone from being in the dominion of darkness to being brought into the kingdom of God's son. And that's really interesting. And it's kind of something we're going to build on this morning. So if you look at um, the map again, you'll see that what puts us on the map is we're born. So Jesus put it this way in John chapter three, he says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom. So this map won't even make sense to you. As far as you're concerned, you're in the real world. The dim- you don't think of it as the dominion of darkness, you think of it as the real world. But think about it, for a child in its mother's womb, what's the real world look like to them? The place of darkness, but it's familiar, it's warm, it's comfortable. As far as that child is concerned, this is the real world. There's nothing beyond this. But we, on the outside, would look at that and say, no, there's a whole, there's the real world that you, that you need to become a part of. And it's, it's great, but you have to be born. You don't get to see this, this real world, this kingdom. You don't get to be a part of it without birth. And so the Bible uses this idea of being born. And so we're going to look at some verses, many verses that we could focus on, but John chapter 1, how does someone, how, how, what, what's involved in someone being born spiritually? John's gospel really spends a lot of time bringing that out, but let's look at these verses in John 1, in the introduction to John's gospel. He says this, yet to all who received him, speaking of Jesus, yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, He, God the Father, gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Okay, so we're kind of starting midway through the chapter. A few verses previously, um, John told us that, as he's introducing us to Jesus, he tells us that, that through Jesus, the world was made. And, and then Jesus, who was part of making the world, um, came into the world. How crazy is that? <laughs> how, how amazing that the one who created this world entered it as a man. Um, but that's what scripture teaches us, that Jesus came down to earth. He's, he's unique among, uh, I was researching this earlier. How many people do you think have lived on the earth like throughout the course of history, whether you believe that's a short time, a long time? Right now there are eight billion people. How many people throughout all time do you think? I, I cheated because I Googled it earlier this week. <laughs> but most estimates that I saw were, were somewhere around 100 billion. So think about that, 100 billion people, let's just use that as a working number. 100 billion people have walked on the face of this earth. Um, But only one of them had a life that pre-existed his birth. For the rest of us, our lives started when we were conceived and then when we were born into the world. Not so with Jesus. He was there at the very beginning and is the reason all of us are here, and yet he had a birth. He chose to come down to earth 
and become one of us. Um, And yet it tells us in John 1 that he came to his own and those who were his own did not recognize him and did not receive him. Again, that's amazing that the one who made the earth came into the earth and most people couldn't recognize him and did not receive him. And that's where we get verse 12. But some people did recognize him and they did receive him as this unique person, the one who had created the earth, the promised Messiah who was sent. And to those people, God gives the right to become children of God. So birth, spiritual birth, is all about, do you recognize who Jesus is? And have you responded by embracing him as the creator, as the Lord of your life, as the one who's able to rescue you from this world and bring you into the kingdom of God? If so, you're born. God gives you the right or the power to become one of his children and you become part of God's family. So you're born and um, we're, gonna, we're gonna say, going back to the map here, um, that's what puts you on the map. But just as um, we have children, um, I, I'm blessed, my wife and I just had um, our second grandchild and it's a joyous moment. When a, when a child is born into the family, we all celebrate and we all rejoice. Um, but it would be a strange thing if we all celebrated and rejoiced and then we just kind of went back to life as normal. If we thought of birth as being the, the, the main event of this person's life, that would be very strange. We, we understand that birth is actually just the beginning of this person's life. And what comes next is life itself and growth. And um, it's the same way spiritually. So we're gonna parallel some stages of growth in the physical world, but we're gonna see that there's a lot of carryover to what we experience in our spiritual lives. So all of us need to be born spiritually, and we all start off as what the Bible describes as newborns or infants in our faith. Now, um, you don't even need to be a parent. You can probably get this next question right. So what do newborn babies need in order to survive and grow? They need milk. Anything else? They need relationship, or they need um, older members of the family who love them and are willing to care for them. So you can really capture those two um, with the idea they need uh, nourishment or nutrition, and they need nurture. So nutrition and nurture. Well, spiritually, we see some, some similarities. So let's look at um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Pastor Shelton actually shared from this passage a few weeks back. This is Paul speaking to um, young believers in the city of Thessalonica. And he says this, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children. So we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses and so is God 
of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So Paul, he came to the city of Thessalonica and he shared the good news and people believed. People were born into the kingdom of God. And that's where the real work began. And he, he compares it to parenting, that we were just like a mother, tenderly caring for her nursing child. We were just like a father, encouraging and exhorting you to live a life worthy of God's call. So that's nurture. What about nourishment? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Scripture tells us like newborn babies. Now he's not writing to babies, physical babies. He's writing to young believers. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And there's so many things in in those verses. Like now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now that you've been born into this real world, into this, this, the kingdom of God, you've tasted that the Lord is good What comes next? Crave pure spiritual milk. Why? So that you may grow in your salvation. So just as we would want to see these these young physical babies grow and thrive and eat um, and learn, that's how life is spiritually for us, that we should be desiring this pure spiritual milk. Now, what is it? What is the milk that we're supposed to crave? What is spiritual milk? What do you guys think? The gospel. gospel. Scripture. In fact, um, the New American Bible says, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So new believers they need older believers who are part of their lives. Like, that's why we need the church. But we need the church not, not just so that we come here every Sunday and we, we sit and we listen, but we need the relationships that the church provides us, that this, this is the family of faith. And if you're older in the faith, which we're going to get to, um, you need to be giving back to these younger believers Uh, that's what Paul and his team were doing with the Thessalonians, like a mother, like a father, um, sharing their life with these young believers and helping them learn the pure spiritual milk so that they can grow. Okay, well, babies don't stay babies. They become toddlers. And um, how would you distinguish between an infant and a toddler? What are some of the main differences? What do you guys think? walking, they, they're toddling. <laughs> I mean, toddler, that's a fun age because the kids are, they're beginning to do things for themselves. They're, they're learning to do, to become a little more independent. They're learning to walk, to talk, to feed themselves. Uh, our two-year-old granddaughter is currently potty training, which is very exciting for the adults. <laughs> She's uh, learning to do something for herself that the rest of us appreciate. So, 
Now, how do we learn these things as toddlers? So how did you learn to speak? What's that? Copying. You were around older members of the human race who were making these strange noises. And um, over time, you began to realize that certain noises happened repeatedly. And then you began to realize that those noises meant something. And then you realized that you could make noises um, and you learned how to talk. It, it, takes, it takes some time, but it's really, it's really a result of younger people being around older people and then being willing to try it out for themselves. Um, well, interestingly, we see the same dynamic with disciples. So in Philippians chapter four, verse nine, Paul is writing to another group of young believers in the city of Philippi, and he says this, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I love this verse because Paul was giving in so many different ways. He wasn't just teaching them. He says, some of the things that you've learned and received because you heard it, but some of it's because you saw it. You saw it in my life. And then he, he's encouraging them, but you have to put that into practice. It's not enough just to watch. Uh, it wasn't enough for the Philippian church to watch these superstars, um, these gifted leaders like Paul and his apostolic team. Paul was saying, hey, the things you're seeing in me, you put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, God is not just with the older believers. He wants to be with us, and we can learn by example. But, but a toddler has to be willing to put things into practice, and it's the same thing for us spiritually. Um, it's great to come and learn from a gifted teacher like Shelton. Um, I thank God for the way he's gifted Pastor Shelton. He's a great teacher. Um, but if all we do is come and listen, and we never put into practice some of the things that we see in the older believers around us, then we're really missing out on this life that, that God is calling us to. He wants us to learn the scriptures. He wants us to learn to trust him and to obey him. So that's a toddler. Okay, so the next stage that we're gonna look at, stages of growth on this map to maturity, would be a teen. We're gonna skip over some of the, uh, the younger children. If you think about uh, a teenager, I've got one right now. Um, and a teenager is learning what matters most in life, for good or bad. They're making decisions about what matters the most, and then they're beginning to orient their life around those things. They're beginning to, you could say, discipline their lives or pursue those values, the things that they think are of value. Spiritually, um, there are commitments that Jesus calls us to as his followers, as his disciples. In fact, Jesus is the one who referred to his followers as disciples, disciplined learners. So Jesus, he has some commitments that he wants us, if we're going to be his disciples, he wants us to be committed to these things, and he wants us to be learning to build our lives around them. So we're gonna look at three Three things that Jesus gave his disciples from the Gospel of John. The first one is in John 8, 31 and 32. 
To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How many of you guys have heard verse 32? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Probably a lot of people, whether they go to church or not, have heard that. Probably many of them don't even know that Jesus said it. Jesus is the one who said, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. But now look at verse 31. How familiar is verse 31? Not as familiar, right? Very few people probably have heard, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So the problem of knowing verse 32, but having it disconnected from verse 31, is that this is called an if-then statement. If verse 31 is happening, then verse 32 is happening. So we don't get verse 32 without verse 31. And verse 31 is, if you hold to my teaching. This is Jesus speaking. Now what's interesting is Jesus was in the city of Jerusalem and he was talking to large crowds of people here in John chapter eight. And uh, John seven and eight, I love these chapters. You ought to read them again if you haven't recently because people did not know what to make of Jesus. And sometimes we think that if Jesus was here in the flesh in 2023, then everyone would just recognize and get on board. Oh, he really is the son of God. He really is the Messiah. We should listen to him. But that's not true because Jesus was on the earth as a man right there for people to see and people couldn't decide. Half the people thought, hey, this is a prophet. This is someone who's been sent by God. We should listen to him. But half the people thought that he was working for the devil. And it even says that he leads the people astray. So that's crazy for us to think that people could see Jesus and hear him and, and actually have a radically different opinion of him than we would as his followers, but that was the case. So in John eight, he's teaching the crowds and it says, verse 30, which we don't have on the screen, but verse 30 says that as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him, right? So he's talking to this big crowd of people and as he's talking to that crowd, some of them begin to believe. Hey, I, I don't think he's leading the crowds astray. I, I think he's telling us the truth and we need to listen to him. Verse 31. Jesus said to those Jews who had believed him. So if you're one of those people who believes in Jesus and you've, you've got this positive opinion of him, you think he is someone worth listening to, then this verse 31 is for you. Um, to those who had believed him, he said, I want you to hold to my teachings. Um, the New American says, if you abide in my word, if you live in my word, then you are truly my disciple and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the first commitment, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, is a commitment to his teachings, a commitment to what God has revealed to us in this book that we call the scriptures, the word of God. Um, and we need to value it and begin to build our lives around it, become more disciplined as learners of the scriptures. Second commitment is a few chapters later in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, 
so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So again, notice the commitment that Jesus is calling us to. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple. A disciple has this commitment and it's visible. People can see them living out this commitment and that's what marks them. Okay, that's a disciple of Jesus. And what is it? To love one another the way Jesus loved. Now you have to know who is he talking to, this one another. So in John 13, you've all seen the painting of Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper, where they're all on one side of the table. Um, <laughs> that's John 13. Um, so he's, he's not speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to actually his 11 faithful disciples. A few verses earlier, Judas had left to betray Jesus. So this is one of the last things Jesus said before he was betrayed and before he was crucified on the cross. He told those 11 faithful disciples, if you love one another the way I have loved you, the whole world will know that you're my disciples. So it's very specific. It's not just love people the way Jesus loved. He's talking to his disciples and he says, love others the way I have loved you specifically. How did Jesus love the 12? That's what he's calling us to do for others. It doesn't mean that we don't love everyone. That's, that's not what I'm saying. We, we should love everyone because Jesus loved everyone, but he loved the 12 in some specific ways. And, and that's what he's calling us to imitate here in John 13. So a commitment to our fellow believers is a second discipline that Jesus is calling us to as his disciples. And then the third commitment is in John 15, verse eight. And it says, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Again, this is from Jesus himself. This is how you show yourself to be my disciple, bearing much fruit. Now, um, apples have seeds that produce apple trees, that produce apples, that have seeds, that produce apple trees. So followers of Jesus, we have within us the gospel, the, the imperishable seed. Um, and the Lord wants us to share that with others so that they can come to faith. They have that seed, they can share it with others. And that brings the Father glory. Um, when we share, he's made us part of his family, but he's also, called us into the family business. So the father has a ministry of reconciliation um, and he's entrusted that to us. That's a different message. I'm not gonna go down that. Just to say, um, disciples are growing in their commitment to the scriptures, their love and commitment to one another and to the family business, sharing the faith and helping other people come to know Jesus. Those are three commitments Jesus wants us to grow in our commitment to, just like a teenager is learning what matters and learning to be more disciplined in those things. Okay, so after a teen, we're gonna say this next stage of growth is an adult. Um, this is a very important stage of growth in life. And for this illustration, it's also an important stage. 
Um, in Matthew 9, 36 through 38, it says that Jesus saw the multitudes, the crowds, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he had compassion. He felt compassion. Then he turned to his disciples and he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into his harvest. Now, I've always thought this was, you know, Carlo mentioned that uh, the podcast is called Into the Harvest. It's from this verse. Um, there's, there's a big need is what Jesus is telling his disciples. The harvest is plentiful. Look at these crowds of people who are harassed and helpless. Look at these crowds of people who are like sheep without a shepherd. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In Matthew 9, the worker was one, Jesus. These thousands of people were coming to him, to hear him, to maybe see him do a miracle, maybe to be healed. But they were all looking to Jesus, um, and Jesus had his disciples. But I've often thought that this would be like the first mega church, you know, uh, it's not apples and apples, but Jesus had thousands of people coming to him. And you would think that that would be a great success, but it says he felt compassion. And in the Greek, you know, he had compassion is a pretty weak sauce translation, but th there's certain things that the English struggles with. Um, the literal translation here, when it says that he, he felt compassion was that his bowels were moved. So that's why they didn't do a literal translation of um, Matthew 9. But the idea is that it was a physical sensation that Jesus had. It was like a punch in the gut. So Jesus was not excited. You know, he, he, was, um, he, he felt it, that there's a great need here that isn't being met. And so what does he do? He turns to these 12 guys behind him and he, he shows them, hey, there's a great need here. The harvest is plentiful, but there aren't very many workers. So I want you to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his harvest. Now, when Matthew wrote his gospel, there were no chapters. He didn't break it into chapters. He didn't break it into verses. Those were added later to help us quickly reference and find places. So when Matthew wrote his gospel, there's no break between Matthew 9 and Matthew 10. So this is the end of Matthew 9. Guys, there's a huge need. There's very few workers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. What happens in chapter 10? He sends out the 12. <laughs> so he says, man, there's a big need. You guys should be praying about this. Okay, now I'm gonna send you out into the harvest as some of these workers. And that was Jesus's point, that he trained up the 12 so that when he physically left the earth, they continued on with this work that he had entrusted to them. So an adult in life, one way you can think about this is that an adult in life is a, should be a net contributor to society. You know, they're contributing more than they're taking. Um, whereas, before that, it's mostly about growing and learning yourself. So you're receiving more. Um, and the way I would say that spiritually is that 
when we reach this stage of growth in our spiritual lives, yes, we're still learning, we're still growing, we're lifelong learners and followers of Jesus. There's always something to learn. But the focus of your faith and your devotion is becoming more others-focused. You're also concerned about helping others, serving them, helping them grow, helping them come to know, and that begins to dominate more and more of, of your focus. The last stage that we're gonna look at on this map to maturity we're gonna call it parent. And uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Um, now, what does Matthew 28 21 say? Anyone know? There's no verse 21. So that's a trick question. <clears throat> so this was the last thing that Matthew felt that we needed to know in terms of Jesus's words to his disciples. And I love it. You can sort of, you can sort of summarize it a little bit, right? So he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations to the very end of the age. So this is uh, what you might call standing orders. These, these instructions that Jesus gave his first disciples, they're still in effect for those of us today who are following him because we haven't reached the end of the age. This age, we're in the same age that those 12 were. And so Jesus is doing the same work and he's calling us to be involved in it just like he was those, those first disciples. Another way to think about this is that if you look at the first words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew's gospel are found in Matthew chapter four, verse 19. So if you have a Bible where Jesus's words are in red, Matthew 4, 19, these are the first red words to the disciples. Now, Jesus said some other words before that, but his first words to the ones who began to follow him and become his, his disciples are in Matthew 4, 19. And it's where Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, okay? The first words of Jesus to his disciples are come, follow me. And what are his last words here in Matthew 28? Go, make disciples. And if you just keep those two ideas in your mind about what is Jesus calling me to? That's a pretty good start. Come, follow me, go, make disciples. And as you go through life, you're just doing these things over and over. Draw near to Jesus, come follow him. Go out into the world and make disciples. Draw near to Jesus, go out into the world. These are the things that he's calling us to do. All right, so just wanna wrap this up. If we could pull the map back up. When I saw this at the age of 20, it was so helpful because for the first time I, I felt like I had a, a picture. If you think about what maps do for us, um, they do at least two things. One is they help you orient. They help you find out where you're at on the journey. Um, and that's how this map helped me. It just helped me get a sense for where I was. At the time, I was probably in one of those first two stages. Um, but they also give you a sense of where you could go if you wanted to. Um, you could get from point A to point B 
um, by following that map. And in that sense, I hope that as you think about what we've looked at this morning and you think about your own life and where you're at, where are you at on this map? Where, where do you find yourself? Are you even on the map? You might still be on the outside looking in, but, but wanting to become part of God's family, to wanting to be part of this kingdom and this work that he's doing on the earth. Maybe you are on the map, but you're towards the early stages. What do you need? Do you need nurture? Do you need nutrition? Do you need to follow the good examples that are around you? Do you need to begin putting these things into practice? Um, if you've been following the Lord for a while, who are you, who are you paying it forward to? Um, who's younger than you in the faith that you could encourage and help out? Um, that's a big part of what the Lord is calling us to as his people, um, to help others learn and grow. So um, I hope this is encouraging to you. Um, I first saw this on a napkin at a restaurant. And um, Hannah, who does the graphics in the back, um, was responsible for making it more legible. Uh, I still share it. I write it all out when I'm sharing with a young believer and just to, to talk with them about where they're at. Um, but I hope you'll take this and not only find yourself on it, but maybe share it with someone else who's uh, just getting started in the faith.